This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Super pumped for this one. We'll talk to John Boog Shiambi of ESPN, the de facto voice of the Big 12. Excited to talk to John. I want to speak about David McCormick, how unique he is, and why it makes him so difficult to talk about. A few brief thoughts on the Juwan Howard, Greg Gard situation, and we will close out with a mailbag. But the lead, not to bury it, two episodes this week. In fact, two episodes each week, the remainder of the KU basketball season. That's right. Normally, you're hearing a new episode on a Wednesday. You're hearing this because it dropped on a Monday, and we got another one coming two days later. A little life hack for you. Maybe we'll do a little branch off where I, ha- I give you more of my life hacks. Instead of using a certain amount of effort to do one episode, I can parse it, use the exact same amount of effort, and put out two episodes. So instead of one mildly efforted episode, I'm going to do two half-assed episodes. This is the first part of that life hacks. I'll have more of those in a later episode. I want to talk about David McCormick in relation to a handful of other great KU big men under Bill Self. In conference play right now, David McCormick is averaging just a hair under 12 points per game and over nine rebounds per game. He had 19 and 11 against West Virginia on Saturday. It was one of his best performances of the season. But we know by now with David McCormick, you get the highs and you get the lows. It's not steady, Eddie. It's not. He's just going to give you this each night out, right? He'll have the great performances, and he'll mix in a few stinkers as well. But you look at the totality of it, 11 points, 9 rebounds per game in conference play. Under Bill Self, there have only been three other players to do that at Kansas. Yudoke Azubuki as a senior, Thomas Robinson as a junior, and Diedrich Lawson as a junior in 2019. Yudoka was an All-American. He was the best player on the best team in 2020. Thomas Robinson was an All-American. He was the best player on a team that was the national runner-up. Diedrich Lawson was one of the best players in the country. Unfortunately, didn't have great personnel around him. That was a rather forgettable season for KU in 2019. But that's the company that David currently keeps. Yudoka, T-Rob, and Diedrich Lawson. The only four players under Bill Self to average 11 points and nine rebounds per game. I'm not saying that Dave deserves to be brought up amongst those guys. But it is important to know when we talk about Dave and this rotation and every time he comes out of the game, when we point to Mitch or KJ Adams or Zach Clements as the one coming in and wondering why it's this guy, why is it not that guy? Two straight games it had been Zach Clements as the best big off the bench. And then he, surprisingly, doesn't get a single minute against West Virginia. It was Mitch who came in off the bench, and it wasn't great. And a lot of fans wondered after the game what was going on. Bill Self was asked about it in the press conference, and he said, you know, I just told Mitch I wanted experience. I told him, you're going to play in this game. He stuck to it. Didn't see any of Zach Clements. There's only five games left in the regular season. And I keep saying this. And I'll probably be proven wrong because there's certainly precedent to suggest that things can change when your back's against the wall in March. But if you're not carving out a role on the team right now, it seems unlikely that come the NCAA tournament, all of a sudden, you're going to be able to do that. So as far as the big man rotation goes, it's Dave and then spin the wheel. You know, I kind of went back and looked at some of the big man rotations 
under Bill Self at KU. And there's a lot of common threads. The first one is that it's usually three guys. If we're just not talking stretch fours, right? We're not looking at the Kevin Youngs, the Perry Ellis's of the world, even the Marcus Morris's. Like as great as Marcus was, he was never the sole big guy on the court. He always had a Cole Aldridge or a Markeith that he was playing next to, or even a Thomas Robinson. You look at some of the best big rotations that KU's had. 2008, the team that won the national championship, there was no true five on that team. Sasha Khan was that dude, but he averaged about 18 minutes a game. That's not starter minutes. Darrell Arthur would start the game, but he would do it oftentimes next to Darnell Jackson, 6'9", 250. Darrell Arthur, 6'9", 225. That was not a prototypical front court. Neither is the one that KU's playing with this year. Now, Dave is a big, but the difference between he and guys like Udoka and Thomas, who are the only other dudes to have the production that he's had this year under Bill Self in conference play, is that in the case of Udoka, he also happened to be an elite defender. And in the case of Thomas Robinson, he happened to always play next to an elite defender, maybe the best defensive big man Bill Self's ever had at KU, and Jeff Withy. David has found himself in no man's land. He's actually improved. He's done this thing. It's a crazy novel concept that maybe wasn't as applicable last year where he has learned to fit in and do his job offensively without having to be the focal point, without always being the center of attention because you're either shooting the ball or turning it over. That hasn't been Dave this year. Across the board, even counting late season Dave when he was super productive and he was the go-to guy offensively, this version of David McCormick is the best version of David McCormick we've ever seen because he's learning that he can be productive and do his job without having to be the alpha offensively. And his rebounding numbers have went up in a way that's, I mean, he's getting like three or four offensive rebounds a game. Now, yeah, some of those are off of his own misses, but hey, if you're getting two cracks at it every time down, it's not the worst strategy in the world. There's a lot of consternation as to why isn't this guy playing more? Why wouldn't you play Zach Clements? Why is it Mitch? That we've been spoiled as KU fans to expect that there's always an answer waiting on the bench. There is always somebody, somebody who's not getting played, somebody whose number is not being called, that would be a better option than the dude who is currently frustrating you. Because oftentimes, over the past nearly 20 years, that has been the case. Because there's always been a Sasha Khan or a Darnell Jackson, or a Markeith Morris waiting on the bench to check in and prove that with extended playing time, hey, I can be somebody who can be trusted on. I don't know if that guy exists on this year's team. I have really high hopes for Zach Clements. I think over the next couple of years, he's going to be uh, a very central cog into what KU's trying to build. And I liked what I've seen from him. I wish he would have played against West Virginia. I do think he's the best big off the bench. But he didn't play. Conspiracy theories start to fly around. What's going on? Bill Self's so stubborn. It's because he doesn't want to play young guys. Maybe that's true. Or maybe it's something not so sensational. You know? Maybe it's the fact that Zach Clements didn't have a great week of practice. And he's not going to throw him under the bus. I mean, that's been a pretty steady theme under Bill Self. If you don't practice well, you're not going to play well. And I don't know if that's the case. But I also don't think that Zach Clements is the answer. I think there are going to be spurts in March where he gets in, makes a couple plays, whether it's defensively knocking down some shots on offense where we say, wow, aren't you glad you had this guy? And if you do, that's the beginning of Zach Clements becoming a legend. But it's also just as likely as him sort of doing the same thing that most freshman bigs do under Bill, which is get your spurts, but for the most part, you're going to be sitting and watching and learning. And I know it's frustrating because you get Mitch out there and you realize how undermanned you are. You realize how underwhelmed you are. The fact remains that KU moving forward is going to go with the guys that have been playing. I'm trying my hardest not to talk about Remy or invoke him in any way, but this rotation that we're seeing, the guys who start the game, the guys who finish the game, you know them by now, Dewan, CB, Ochai, Jalen, and Dave, that's the five that KU's rolling with. Since Remy went out, since that Kentucky game, the last nine games for KU... When that main starting five is on the court, they're outscoring opponents by nearly 16 points per game. 16 points per game. When literally any other lineup is on the court, take one of those five out of the equation, that's cut in half. They're outscoring opponents by, on average, eight points per game. 
Doesn't matter if it's Dewan coming out for Joe Yesifu or Pettiford's coming in or JCL's coming in for CB or Mitch is coming in for David McCormick. Anytime you take one of those main five off the court, the team gets drastically worse. And it's not because they each have these super specific individual roles that nobody else on the bench can replicate. It's simply that those are your five best players and Bill Self has trust and comfort when playing those five over anybody else. And to a further point, they all probably feel more comfortable when the other four are on the court together because of the amount of time that they've put in together. I don't know if this is a national championship team. I feel like I bring it up every single time we do one of these monologues, and I still don't have a good answer for it. But I do think if they're going to get to a national championship, it's going to be on the backs of those five. And whether it's Zach Clements or KJ Adams or Mitch Lightfoot coming in off the bench, this team's going to be at its best when Dave's playing as much as humanly possible because history would suggest you get your best big guys on the court, you keep them out there until you absolutely can't. Before we get on to Book Shambi, I want to touch really briefly on the Juwan Howard, Greg Gard incident. Cliff Notes version, the game is over. Greg Gard calls a timeout because Juwan Howard is playing basically a press defense. Greg Gard's got his bench warmers in. The game's over. It's like a 14-point game. So instead of just letting Michigan get a turnover or try to steal the inbounds play, he's going to call a timeout. The clock resets to get the ball across half court. And he gets it in, the game's over. It doesn't feel like much of a big deal. But Juwan Howard took exception with it. The team who's getting their ass kicked, you're the one who dictates the terms of whether or not coaches are still supposed to be coaching and players are supposed to still be playing. If Juwan Howard calls the dogs off, that sends the signal to the other team that we're no longer playing, so you don't have to worry about timeouts, you don't have to worry about us trying to force turnovers, trying to steal an extra two or three points here. The game is over, which the game was. And I would imagine when Juwan Howard's going through the handshake line and he pulls his mask out to tell Greg Gard, I'll remember that shit for next year. And Greg Gard sort of grabs him by the elbow and kind of t- touches him on the elbow and says, hey, listen, I would imagine what Greg Gard was about to do there was to say like, hey, I called that timeout because you were pressing when I had my bench warmers in. I had a bunch of walk-ons on the court and you were pressing us. That's why I called the timeout. And you hear over about five or six times Juwan Howard say, don't fucking touch me, don't fucking touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. Everybody comes in, tries to break it up. Wisconsin assistant jumps in. Who knows what was said there, but at some point, Juwan Howard tried to punch, slap, open-handed, hit him in the face. Which, by the way, if you've ever been in a fight or just been the recipient of a punch or a slap, I think I would almost rather be punched than slapped. I've been both. I've been punched three times, I think. I've been slapped uh, way more times than I've been punched. Being punched hurts more, but being slapped is way more disrespectful. So there was this like ongoing debate. as like, well, it wasn't a punch. Stop saying he threw a punch. It was, well, he hit him in the head. It doesn't matter if it was a punch or a slap. I would rather be punched. I guess maybe if the conversation is about, well, a punch could cause more damage, whatever. Okay. That conversation feels like we're getting lost in the details here. A a few things on this. First off, something that gets really annoying with me, and it it reminds me of the Silvio DeSosa K-State incident from a couple of years ago where the game is over, K-State steals the ball, Silvio comes down, uh, words are exchanged, a little shove, and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose, punches are being thrown, Silvio's got a stool hold above his head. The conversation, much like it has been over the last... 24 hours is about, well, who was really at fault here, right? This person never should have done this thing. And then that person never should have done that thing because this thing led to that, that, that next thing. And that's why he was so mad. But then when he did that other thing and when he touched him on the elbow, that's why he, that's not how fights work. Anybody who's ever been in any sort of physical altercation, we're not going back and taking inventory afterwards saying like, okay, well, like let's, let's do a little tally box here and say, who ultimately, let's get to the genesis of this fight. Here's what I do know. When you're a head coach of a college basketball program, you don't get to hit other coaches. The idea that Juwan Howard, regardless of what happened in the game, is going to get so angry to the point where he is going to punch, slash, hit, slash, slap the assistant coach of the opposing team is ridiculous, and the idea that we're trying to now defend him to say, well, you know, we need to find out what the other guy said. Do we? Do we need to find out what the other guy said? You're the head coach at Michigan. The Juwan Howard aspect of it's interesting because 
This is a guy who just got done playing basketball less than a decade ago, immediately become an assistant coach with the Miami Heat. And the second Michigan was looking for a replacement for John Beeline, they went with the splashy hire. And for the most part, from a recruiting perspective, with the success they had last year, it's worked out pretty well. But this is now the second time in less than a year where he's had an altercation. The same thing happened, not the same thing, but in a similar incident where he has to be physically restrained from going after an opposing coach in the Big Ten tournament a year ago. He's not part of that for that coaching fraternity in the Big Ten. And I would imagine he is not a popular guy. People don't like him. So when Greg Gard's coming up and talking to him or the assistant coach for Wisconsin is coming up and talking to him, I'd imagine there was some built-up frustration going into those conversations other than what just took place over the final 90 seconds of that game. I don't really like to get into the whole, the example that you set for young kids, but that was a horrible moment for Michigan and a horrible moment for Juwan Howard. I don't think he should lose his job, but I ask you this. If Juwan Howard were on the open market, how many high major programs, how many legit basketball powers are signing up to hire him as their head coach? I don't know if he is officially the voice of the Big 12, but if you watch Big 12 basketball, you know who he is. John Boog Shambi joining us. John, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You had a tweet the other day that had me belly laughing. The picture of the volleyball court outside of the MCI Courtyard Marriott, which just looks like uh, the most desolate beach volleyball court ever. And it clearly struck a chord with you like, uh, like a kid standing outside of Wrigley Field or Fenway for the first time. So we actually we stay in Lawrence, and then after the game, we'll go stay there just so, you know, for flights, basically, then, you know, after the game. But, you know, we, we stay in Lawrence, you know, for day before and day of the game, and then afterwards we'll drive there. But it's just, it's one of these things that I don't know whether I noticed it something probably like four or five years ago, you know, and it's the dead of winter and it's freezing and you see it from the parking lot. I remember the first time I saw it, you know, it's, it's probably midnight. And I'm looking, and I'm like, is that a volleyball <laughs> in the middle, like, off this massive parking lot? And there's nothing else around. I mean, it's just so random and weird. So I pretty much, I would say that for the last five years, every time I've stayed there, I've taken a picture of it and tried to have some fun with it. Never seen, never actually witnessed a game there, though. I've never seen a game in no, the <laughs> Avoid by you. No, I have never actually seen a match there at the Kansas City Marriott court. No, it's always been uh, dormant when I have been there. That's a shame because I would imagine you being a connoisseur and aficionado of some of the most uh, legendary venues, getting to call games at Wrigley, Fenway, all over Major League Baseball, college basketball as well. When you when you think about these legendary iconic sporting venues. Are there individual unique aspects that, that sort of set each one of those apart, or is there sort of a common thread that makes all of them special? I, both is what I would say. I mean, I think um, you know, there are individual aspects. Like for me, I'll tell you this, I something about, I mean, I think Alan is as special as it gets. I mean, I'm biased. I get to work in um, you know, in the Big 12. And then, I, you know, my home park is Wrigley. I've probably done, nationally, I've done more games at Fenway probably than any other park. So there are individual things. You know, for example, you know, at Allen, one of the things is that there's, you know, very uh, subtle, but, you know, there are windows at the top. So, like, you know, when you sit there and look at uh, a day game at Allen when mm-hmm. the sun cuts across or a late afternoon game and there's that, that sort of ray of light that cuts through with the place packed is pretty special. You know, Fenway has an energy to it. Wrigley is this atmosphere that everybody you feel like is smiling because in Chicago – after the winter, it feels like everybody got let out of jail. So I, I, there, 
I think that there are, I think there are threads because the older places all have that nostalgia to them, and you you get a little bit of a feel of what it was like fifty years ago. That's the common thread, but then they all have their own individual things as well. You know what's so interesting about that is that all of a sudden, Lubbock has become one of the more hostile environments in the Big Twelve, and I think that's a testament to what Chris Beard built, but. This year, and maybe it's because of Chris Beard leaving, it feels like it's almost been ramped up a notch. And I feel like that's tough to do for a program that's not in what you would call a destination town and doesn't really have that rich tradition to go with it, has all of a sudden sort of found itself as a really, really solid place to watch a basketball game. I know you've you've called some games down there. How would you describe what that's been like and maybe how different it is from what it was, you know, five, six years ago. Totally. You're, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, I would even argue, you know, because they were still sorting it out that, you know, in 19 and 18, you know, when Chris was there, I mean, they, you know, you went, they went to the, to the championship game in 19. I don't think it was the same as it is now. I think right now, I mean, that, that place is, Energized and um, like their team. I think. I, I mean, my my the the way I interpret it is, yeah, their fans realize they have a a national power basketball program, and they're excited to be there. I mean, one of the things is just a giant pain in the butt as an announcer, and I'm not. I'm just telling you. It's. I mean, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not asking them to, to not do it, but um, everybody stands. So, like, we, you know. Yeah. I'm sitting there, and I got Patrick Mahomes literally standing right in front of me. Like, I can't see the court. And then on the other, everybody's standing the entire time. So the atmosphere is is magnificent. It's uh, it's it's really, and but you, you uh, you're, uh, look, or I'll, I'll just say this. Your perception of it is spot on to what my perception is of it, that it has changed. Um, and that it is different than it was five years ago. It, it's even it's 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 louder and more energized even to me than consistently when you know we would go there. You know the year they went to the Final Four. You could always just ask Patrick Mahomes to sit down. I don't know how popular that would make you in love. I yelled down in front. I yelled down in front. I mean, <laughs> I, but I you know as a joke. I mean, but it's. Uh, no, he, I mean like everybody's standing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's uh, it's 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 cool. And and then look, I'll also tell you this: not not to the same extent, but Baylor this year. Um, you know, it's not a place known for having a particularly good atmosphere. But this year, I mean, there's definitely more buzz in that in that place than in years past. There's just there's more energy in there. There's no question. Well, with uh, how many different sorts of venues and, and the historic ones that you've gotten the chance to call games in, at this point in your career, you've been doing it for so long. Is there still a bucket list item? Is there still a, a venue you, you want to be able to call a game at other than the KC Airport Marriott Volleyball Beach? Right. Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, in terms of like I haven't I haven't gone to Michigan State when they're I haven't gone to Michigan State and I haven't you know done it when they're good but you know there's nothing especially specific to that in college basketball my one regret was that I didn't get a chance to call uh, a game at Matt Court which was the old spot at Oregon um, Otherwise, I, I would say I've gotten a chance, you know, like I've done the Palestra, I've done Hinkle, I've done, you know, those places multiple times, done Cameron multiple times. I don't, I don't think there's any place in college basketball, you know, baseball at this point, I've kind of, I've kind of hit them all. Um, I, I will tell you this, I, I still, I'm grateful that I'm able to be in this space, but I mean, I still, you know, Wrigley's my home park. I still, you know, leave there or come in there at times when it's dead quiet and I'm right behind home plate and there's nobody in there and I just take pictures because it's, I mean, all these times later and it's still just this unique special place. 
and and Allen does the exact same thing. When I the, the first shoot around I go to, and I am in Allen and it's completely empty. I just want to go to every corner of the place, and I mean this every time. It never gets old, and just take pictures um, of the big giant Jayhawk on the court of you know the rafters, all of it. So I you know I hope I don't lose that because. Uh, I don't think I will because I still feel it. I had it, you know. Here's a, I'll give you a great one. Like this is a good example. The manager of the Cubs is David Ross, who I worked with at ESPN. So Rossi and I were doing a Red Sox game. You know, David played for the Cubs. He also played for the Red Sox. We come to the ballpark together and we get there a little bit early. If you've never been to Fenway, you have just sort of a vague idea about it. But you know, it's a, it's an old park, so you come in. And if you wanted to get to the field after you go in behind home plate uh, or the entrance, you know, off of what used to be Yawkey Way, now Jersey Street, you basically walk through the stands. And so we go up through the tunnel. We come out. Now we're on uh, the concourse behind home plate, and we're just looking right at the Green Monster behind the, the first set. And we both, without intention to one another, just stop. He's played on the field. I've done easily a hundred games in that ballpark, and we both just stop and look at it and have that type moment. And then we just look at each other and smile. And I love that. Like he caught there. He caught like the <laughs> final out of the 2013 World Series. He's behind the plate, and he he and I walk out there together. And we have the same reaction to walk out onto a field that he's played on tons of times, and I broadcast that tons of times. It, for me, it never gets old. It's, it's, I love it. I love it. That's a really cool story. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would imagine more people know you from calling Cubs games or calling baseball games on ESPN than college basketball, just because I think it's probably a little bit bigger of a sport. and correct me if I'm wrong, but you got your start in baseball, did you not? Like, baseball was, was before college basketball, at least, on a bigger yeah, scale, no right? Doubt. It, 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 it is the thing. There's no question. So it's funny, you know, I have uh, there's a select group of coaches that when I go do a college basketball game now, it's like this wrestling match where they want to ask me about baseball and I want to ask them about <laughs> their team. Or now, I would say two out of every three officials when they come out before a college hoop game, you know, the other night, Bert Smith comes right up to me. He's like, when's baseball going to start, man? So, yes, you're right. I, I, I am more closely ID'd with baseball. There's no doubt. And my first job was with the Marlins, was with the Boise Hawks professionally, and then I got a job with the Marlins. So, yeah. You know, you guys are broadcasters, and I get a lot of guys are doing different sports, and they'll do this, you know, during football season, during baseball season. Everybody kind of does the, the cross sport, at least the big names like yourself. And I'm just curious as to with baseball, knowing that's a grind of a season and it, it takes up a large chunk of your schedule, what is it about college basketball that makes you want to continue to do that in addition to all your baseball duties each year? Well, because I get to do double overtime, Kansas and Texas Tech at Allen Fieldhouse. You know, I mean, just stuff like that. You just walk out of there, and you can't take the smile off of my face. There, there, there isn't. Look, I'm a baseball dork first and foremost. It is my favorite sport, and I love it as much now at 51 as I did when I was six years old. When I was six years old, my grandparents went on a cruise and they explained to me what a cruise was. And I just sat there and they said, you go away, you play shuffleboard, you eat, you gamble. And my only question was, how do you get the box scores? And my grandfather said, you don't. And so I said, I'm never going on a cruise. Um, but, I, but because baseball's 162 games, you know, the individual atmosphere for college basketball is, is, you know, baseball, the only thing that's, akin to that is the playoffs. And so, you know, what do I like about doing college basketball? I mean, the atmosphere, the energy. I'm in Austin right now. I'm going to do Texas Tech and Texas 
Saturday afternoon, and the strong rumor that I think, I'm pretty sure is true is um, going to be probably seven thousand Texas Tech fans there. So I'm excited to you know those unique atmospheres are you know it's, it's a big thing. I'll also give you this note. I am of an age that is right in the college basketball sweet spot. I know for people in the Midwest, they may not like hearing this uh, because college basketball is national. But I would maintain to you that when college basketball exploded, it exploded at least in part with the creation and the success of the Big East and TV. And I was in New York City in high school at a Catholic school from 84 to 88. You know, right in that time period, 85, when three Big East schools went to the Final Four, college basketball is a big deal. So, I mean, when I was in high school, for example, the two sports that we talked about the most were college basketball and baseball. The Mets won it all in 86. And so, you know, we'd go to the Garden. St. John's teams were as popular as the Knicks teams. I mean, if, if you know, Walter Berry was walking around uh, – or, or, you know, or Mullen, I mean, it's a big deal, man. So I, I, I just feel like it's a sport that I've loved for a long time, and I'm lucky that I get a chance to do my two favorite sports. Well, I would be remiss if I let you go before asking you a couple KU-specific questions. This has been awesome, but I want to get to a couple KU things. First off, you've called a good number of their games this year. And I feel like we've sort of seen every end of the spectrum from what this team can be. It feels like there is a wide range of outcomes on any given day. Does Kansas feel like a title contending team to you? I think I'd say they feel a tiny bit short to me. I, I, I'm not going to say absolutely not, but if I were to tell you, I think there are eight teams uh, or so, seven, eight that can win the national championship. I'm not sure that I think they're one of them. I would say, and I'm just I'm going to make my this comment specific. But the best team in the Big Twelve I've seen this year was healthy Baylor, but by a pretty clear margin. I would say that at their best. Now again, no Chamuchachua. Hinges been banged up, Flagler's been banged up at times, Cryer's been banged up. And, you know, Kansas has dealt with uh, a Remy Martin who hasn't been as healthy or hasn't been healthy. Um, and I think even when on the court, I think it's been, you know, not as impactful as you thought. You know, David McCormick has obviously been inconsistent. But, I, yeah, I think they're probably a little bit short, but I – I definitely could be wrong. It's it's like right on the edge, right on the edge of that. But they would have to go on a pretty – some stuff would have to happen. You know, I I, I think that if, if Kansas becomes a real legit national title contender, there's something there that, that maybe we're not seeing right now. Obviously, you'd assume it would be McCormick being consistent, Abaji being really good. I think Harris is a really nice player. Uh but I, I think it would include something that we haven't really seen, like more Zach Clements or, I don't know, just something that, that we're not seeing right now that, that would make them, I think, more of a title contender. I just don't think they're quite there with, you know, I've seen Purdue in person a couple of times, seen Gonzaga in person. Um, I mean, they're still really good, let's be clear. You've seen Jaden Ivey, you've seen Chet Holmgren, obviously a lot of Ochai. Who's the best player you've seen in college basketball this year? Ooh, in person or just watching total? Either or. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to cop out on that one. I don't think that I've formed a strong <laughs> opinion there. I, I, I mean, it's funny. Holmgren impacts it in so many different ways, but because he does, I think at times people forget about, I mean, Drew Timmy in the yeah. post one-on-one, it's just going to demolish people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's pretty darn special. I will say this. Like, Ivy is, man, he's athletic. The shooting's gotten better. Again, I have a, 
I have a bias towards rooting for and liking Ochai because of the growth. You know, you're talking yeah. about they took his red shirt off and it's 15. It was their team game number 15 when Doak went down that season. And watch his growth from a guy who was shooting 31% from three, 34% from three, 38% from three, and now shooting in the mid 40s from three. Um, I just, I love seeing stuff like that to see how much he's improved as a player. So I don't know that I think, I don't know that I, I feel strongly he's the best player in the country, but he's really good. Well, John, you've been very generous with your time today. I said I'd keep you for 15, and I just steamrolled right through that. So before I let you go. Steamroller. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, a little pro move. Say you're going to keep him for 15, keep him for 20. So before before you go, what can you tell us about Project Main Street? I know it's something that's near and dear to your heart, battling ALS. I don't know what you guys have in, coming down the pipeline in the coming months, but I just want to give you a chance to kind of promote your charity and what, what you guys do. I just, uh, Project Main Street is something that uh, we co-founded with the late Tim Sheehy. He's a childhood friend from when I was seven years old. He was diagnosed with ALS in 2005, uh, lost his life to ALS in 2007. Um, you know, I try and advocate for all things with ALS. You know, again, it's 100% fatal. That's the thing that's so brutal about it. Um and, you know, I advocate for research, et cetera. Our charity is specific and occupies a small space, which is to offset costs associated with the disease because, unfortunately, so much stuff is not covered. So the average out-of-pocket cost for Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS patients is $250,000. So, you know, you can go to projectmainstreet.org. It's Maine, and then it's S. Org. You, you'll see a lot of stuff in terms of cool sports auction items and that type of thing that will be attached to Lou Gehrig Day throughout Major League Baseball, which will sort of be an ALS Awareness Day for the second straight year. So that's really June 2nd will be uh, the every year will be Lou Gehrig Day in Major League Baseball. So this year the Cubs are at home against the Cardinals and um you know, we'll have a we'll have a lot of stuff attached to that, raising money to help people living with the disease. So, thanks for that. Yeah, that's projectmainstreet.org, projectmainst.org. John, this was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. Okay, closing things out with a mailbag at Nick underscore Schwert. If you have any questions for me following a game, we're going to be doing two of these a week now. So, KU plays on Tuesday against Kansas State. Have any immediate reaction questions? Let me know, at Nick underscore Schwartz, and I'll do my best to get to as many of them as I possibly can. First question, why do you think in the past five years or so, Bill Self plays his trusted guys tons, 30 to 35 plus minutes per game, and has little trust in his bench? Is it because the bench is no longer made up of studs like Sharon and Sasha Khan? So this is interesting to me. The idea, and I don't know how commonly felt this is, the idea that, that Bill Self is less eager to go to his bench than he was in years past. You mentioned Sasha Khan and Sharon Collins as bench guys, which would lead me to believe that you're talking about 2008, the year KU won the title. That year, KU ranked 213th in the country, in bench minutes. 213th at the time, I would guess there's about 350 teams. I know right now there's 358 teams in Division One college basketball. So to say you're ranked 213th out of 350 plus, that would mean most teams are playing their bench or going deeper into their bench for more meaningful minutes than you are. Okay. Let's just go through because 2008, I think we would all agree, is the best team the Bill Self's ever had at KU. What are the other teams that you feel like are on that level? Let's go with 2017. It's one of my personal favorites with Frank Mason, Josh Jackson, Devontae Graham's fee. That team ranked 327th in bench minutes. How about 2012, the team that went to the Final Four? That team ranked 314th in bench minutes. How about 2018? 
the last Kansas team to go to the Final Four. That team ranked 345th in the country in bench minutes. This Kansas team in 2022, checking the numbers, ranks 258th. Are you sensing a trend here? Bill Self oftentimes does not go very deep into his bench. And I don't think this is a Bill Self thing. I don't think it's something unique to him. I don't think it's stubbornness. I don't think it's because of recruiting. I think this is the way it goes with most great basketball teams. Like The teams that win the titles aren't the teams that are so great because they can go 10 deep. It's the teams that have the best starting five. We'll take our five. You take your five. Let's see who's better. Generally speaking, again... It's not a blanket statement. It doesn't happen every year. But generally speaking, those are the types of teams that perform very well in March because the rotation always, always, always shrinks during the NCAA tournament. I know I've said it on this podcast, and I apologize for not knowing who to attribute this to, but the idea in in most college basketball teams and most college basketball seasons is that you have... Eight guys you play, seven of which you trust. And then when you get to March, you have seven guys that you play, six of which you trust. If I'm doing that math right now for this Kansas team, I know the five guys that are going to play, but who's the sixth? Is it Joe Yesifu? Is it Mitch Lightfoot? I'm not quite sure. But the point is that we can look at this team and say that Bill Self's not trusting Zach Clements enough or he's not trusting Joe Yesifu enough. You know what, maybe you're right. Maybe those guys do deserve more playing time. But almost universally across the entire spectrum of college basketball, whether we're just talking good teams or we're just talking blue bloods, there is one common reality, which is that they find the guys, the very short list of guys that they trust, and they play them as much as humanly possible. I don't think it's a trend with Bill Self, nor do I think it's something that's specific to this team. I think you find the guys you trust and you play them because when it's nut cutting time and you know it's win or go home, you want the dudes you're most comfortable with. We are learning in real time the dudes Bill Self is most comfortable with and that is why I think you're seeing the rotation shrink as the games pass. Okay, next question. Does the fact that Oach has blossomed into likely conference player of the year overshadow the job Self has done to overwhelm this league without preseason conference player of the year. So this would be in reference to Remy Martin being named the preseason conference player of the year and him basically not even being a part of this team right now. As of the recording of this podcast, KU is 11-2 and in conference play. They hold a two-game lead over both Baylor and Texas Tech in Big 12 play. They've obviously already played Texas Tech twice, so they will play Baylor once more. That game's going to go a long ways towards determining who wins the Big 12. And uh, based off Baylor's personnel right now, I would would think he's going to feel pretty good. Now, that game's in Waco this Saturday, and Baylor's probably going to be, I'll go ahead and stake my claim on it, three and a half point favorites in that one. So, KU won't be expected to win, but if they do, it's over, right? I'm not going to assume KU's going to lose to Kansas State, but if they lose to Baylor then all of a sudden things open up. You win that game. Feels like you are going to go ahead and secure yet another Big 12 title. But back to the question. Does the idea that that Ochai has turned into a player of the year, does it overshadow the job Self has done to overwhelm this league without preseason conference player of the year? Um, If I understand the question correctly, you're asking if, if, if Bill Self deserves more credit because... The preseason Big 12 player of the year hasn't been as good as he's as we thought he was going to be. Um, maybe, but I would probably tend to give more of that credit to Ochai becoming the conference player of the year. It's not just that KU doesn't have a conference player of the year. It's just that it's a different guy than we thought it was going to be. If there's anybody in this equation who deserves more credit, it's Ochai for going to the Combine getting feedback, them telling him, hey man, we like your game, but uh, you're not a first-round pick. And these are the things you need to work on. And him very clearly spending all offseason working on those things. Self, I mean, yeah, self deserves credit for sort of relinquishing a lot of duties to a guy you normally wouldn't do. Like, self's very comfortable 
when he finds that great point guard and saying, here's the keys to the offense. He hasn't always been that comfortable doing it for a wing player. But with Ochai, it's either been an exception or an evolution of Bill Self as a coach. So I'll give him credit in that regard. But big picture, the guy who deserves credit is the one who has turned in one of the, to one of the five best players in the country. That's Ochai Baji. Couple questions on this. I'll just boil it up to one. Where was Clemens tonight? Little surprised by that. Yeah, I was surprised as well. I thought Clemens looked really good in the previous two games. He only played nine minutes in each of the prior two games leading up to that West Virginia game. And then it was Mitch off the bench. I think we saw a little bit of KJ Adams. I was really surprised by that. My initial reaction is always to avoid the sensational reaction and then just go with most likely which I thought would have been that Clements just either A, was injured, or B, had a bad week of practice. Or I guess, to another extent, C, bad matchups. But again, I mean, if you think this guy's going to play a big role on your team, why would you not play him? It was funny. We talked to Cole a couple of weeks ago. Cole was fourth on the pecking order in the rotation in 2008, the year they won the national championship. He was behind Darrell Arthur. He was behind Darnell Jackson. He was behind Sasha Khan. Cole Aldridge averaged eight minutes a game in 2008. But you know what he did? He played all 40 games. I didn't realize that until he told me when we talked to him. I played every single game that year. Every single game. They found a way to get him minutes. So it's surprising to me in a year where you don't have great front court depth that when a guy starts playing well, all of a sudden he doesn't play at all. I have no idea. I'm not privy to things that are going on behind the scenes. I was as surprised as everybody else was. Bill Self clearly has a trust factor with Mitch Lightfoot that he's just not going to be able to replicate with a guy who's only been on campus for a handful of months. But Zach's looked really good. And it feels like heading into March, he's somebody who could play an integral role on this team, especially when you need him. So I was surprised by that. I don't have a great answer for it. Wouldn't shock me at all if coming up against Kansas State, all of a sudden, Clemens plays 9 to 14 minutes a game. But at this point, there's no reason to project anything with that big man rotation because the only constant has been that inconsistency is going to prevail with those big guys. All right, final question for today's mailbag. Stealing it from Derek Johnson, my guy, Derek Johnson on Rock Chuck Sports Talk and Lawrence. Who are the top three guys, not in the Raptors, that you'd have jerseys hung? Outside of Paul McKeskey, of course. Yeah, Paul McKeskey. Shout out Paul McKeskey. By the way, Paul McKeskey, Rafe LaFrance, the two white whales. If anybody has any contact information on either one of those guys, I am aware that Rafe LaFrance is a volunteer assistant coach for Decorah High School basketball up in Iowa. So if you got a contact, if you can organize an interview, white whale, whatever you want. Name your price. I'll get it done because that's the one. But Paul McKeskey's number two. Uh, I don't think uh, Paul McKeskey's getting his jersey retired. Ray LaFrance clearly already has his. Top three guys in the rafters that you'd have? Actually, I'm going to cop out here because I don't think there are three guys. Um, You know, Perry is one that comes to mind. Perry Ellis. Perry has the, the accumulative numbers. But he doesn't have that one season, you know? And I don't know if this is necessarily scientific, but I just don't... They say it out loud, Test. Perry doesn't... He doesn't pass it for me. Self sort of loosened the rules a few years back. I know that he sort of made it more about, you know, if I say they're going in, they're going in. I know the automatic disclaimers, which are conference player of the year, first team All-American, so... Doke is going to get in. That's a fact. I think Devon Dotson's going to get in. Um, Frank Devante, again, no-brainers. Of the guys, of the guys who I, I know, like uh, T-Rob, Frank Devante, there's no discussion to be had. If we're just going with where's the conversation at? Like a guy to have a conversation about it's Keith Langford for me. I don't want to, I don't want to resort to reason. I don't want to resort to statistics. I don't want to, because 
Keith didn't have first-team All-American honors. Keith was never Big 12 Player of the Year. You know what else Keith had that was working against him, at least in the terms of this conversation? He played with Kirk Heinrich, and he played with Nick Collison, and he played with Wayne Simeon. So it's really hard to stand out above those guys. But yet he was still able to do it. Like, if you just think about memories, if you think about moments, games where, where guys came through and were integral in helping you win games. Like Keith Langford deserves to have his jersey hanging in the rafters. And I don't even want to have the conversation about, well, you know, it's a prestigious honor. There's a lot of jerseys up there. Go to Cameron. Go to North Carolina. KU has been... This is not a criticism, but they've been pretty open to the amount of guys they let up there. And there's very few dudes, if any, I haven't went through it, this is just off the top of my head, that I would look at and say, oh, they don't deserve to be up there. But if I'm talking about telling the story of Kansas basketball, if I'm talking about one of the all-time greats, and I've been watching KU very intently for 30 years, Keith Langford is one of the premier players to come through this program over the last three decades. Uh, uh, that's the guy. So I know that doesn't answer your question. You wanted three guys. I gave you one, but I gave a, a pretty impassioned reason as to why he deserves to be up there. Buzzer beater against Nebraska. That's it. That's my whole reasoning behind Keith Lankford. All right, that's it for this one. Uh, we're going to have another episode coming out on Wednesday. We're going to try to do two of these per week. Till the end of the season. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, you guys have been great. It's been so cool watching this audience build over the last month or two. Please, please, please share, subscribe, rate, review, anything you can do. I can't tell you enough how much that helps us. Have another episode here in about 48 hours. Wave in the Wee podcast. We'll see you later. everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.